So it's a real honor. I've been on vacation this week uh, with the babies being down. And so I uh, just wanted to take this week off to spend with them. And I didn't write a message, obviously, because I was hanging out with them. Knowing that that was going to happen, I reached out to my dear friend, Dr. Bill Hackett. Uh, Dr. Hackett started uh, as the professor, one of the professors at Southeastern University. And I would add to that one of the most popular uh, professors. In fact, any class that he was teaching, I mean, it would fill up quickly because he was probably the most beloved professor uh, at Southeastern University. Then later he would become the provost uh, of the university and recently retired from that position so he could do what? Guess what? Go right back into the classroom and all of these students are going to be blessed as a result of that. He's a dear friend. I love him. He's, uh, he and Judy are part of this church every single week. He knows the DNA of this church and he's a part of it, he and his family. So I want you, I don't always get to stay here Normally when he's speaking for me, I'm out of town somewhere, but I'm so excited about the message he has for all of us today. Would you put your hands together? Welcome my friend, Dr. Bill Hackett. Thank, Thank you, you sir. Thank you, buddy. All right. Thank you, buddy. All right. Love that shirt. Thank you. All right. So how you doing? Can we turn the lights up? Is that okay? Because other than that, I, I have spotlights in my eyes. That, is that all right, Pastor? I like to see people, uh, wake them up. That there's, ah, good, there's people out there. Great. Hey, Jeff has been doing a series on, on questions they ask God, and uh, it kind of excited me when you announced that a couple weeks ago, what, four weeks ago, uh, because I teach a class in the spring called Jesus and the Gospels. And I thought as I began that class, uh, I would have them um, do a sheet for me. I said, ask, if Jesus was sitting in front of you, what are 10 questions that you would ask him? And of course, this is college students. They're juniors and seniors, but uh, some of them are interesting. Some of them are deep, but some of them are, are kind of fascinating. So I want to read a couple of them to you. Uh, I mean, here was one right off the top. Do you, Jesus, do you have any hobbies? And I thought, well, that's a no-brainer. Woodworking, all right? Walking on water and probably fishing. He hung around with fishermen. Uh, do you find women attractive? Well, he made them, all right? So I thought that, that's a, like a strange question. I thought this was interesting. What did you do while you were in the grave for three days after you were on the cross? And I thought, well, that's an easy one, too. He just laid around and did nothing. And so these aren't too hard. But then they started to get into more serious things like, uh, how can I show the kindness that you've shown me to other people? Great question. All right. Uh, what do you think about homosexuality and uh, transgenderism? I mean... Students are dealing with those sort of things. This is a different time that we live in. Uh, what, what, why isn't there more written about the 30 years, the first part of your life? I mean, other than your birth and, and what you did at 12 years old, really nothing is told about that particular time. Uh, and so do people go to hell if they commit suicide? That's a tough one. Are there times, why are there times that I, when I cry out, you are silent? And then uh, why doesn't healing come every time I prayed for this? And actually, a number of them asked that question. And one student said this. He said, I've read pretty much every healing that took place in the Bible. They, they seem to be rather frequent when Jesus was going out and doing ministry. My father has had muscular dystrophy for 22 plus years. Why is my dad not healed? He's a believer. 
I hear the cliche, well, it, it may not be his time. How can I be confident in God as my healer when I have prayed so much for healing and it hasn't come to pass? That's a tough one. Maybe you can relate to something along that lines in your own life. And here's one that came up. How do you deal with conflicting scriptures when scripture con- contradicts itself? What do you, what do, you do? Uh, why do good Christians suffer? It is it because of their sin in their life or their parents' life or in their family? And then this last question uh, being dealt with, I-, I thought that's one that we really see really in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Why do bad things happen to good people, especially when they're Christ followers? I mean, aren't we supposed to practice the principle of you reap what you sow? What you plant will come to harvest. And certainly if you, if you plant good things, then shouldn't blessings come to you? And so many times, students are asking that particular question about life. How come, you know, my parents are going through this, they're Christ followers and so forth, and why are bad things happen to them? This is not an unusual question for Scripture, because when we, we find Jesus even dealing with this question, when the disciples and him come across a man who's been blind for 38 years. And, and the first question out of the disciples' mouth is, why is this man, why has he been born blind? Is it because of his sin or is it the sin of his parents? And, and, and there's obviously a question like that that comes across us at different times when we wonder why bad things, or particularly s- suffering or something like that, comes and happens to good people. Uh, we know the book of Job, or maybe we don't. But here's a man that in the very first chapter, in the first verse, it says that he was blameless and upright. He was a man who feared God and shunned evil. And then as we read on in the first chapter and the second chapter, there's a, there's a wager going on between God and Satan. Where, where Satan basically says to God, if you stop blessing Job, bad things are going to happen. He's going to turn against you. And God says, no, no, this, this is a good man. He is a righteous man, my most righteous man that I know. He is going to follow me. And then Satan basically says, well, let me, let me test him in something. Let me take away some of his wealth, his property, and so forth, and let's see what he does. And God puts a limit on what he does at that point. But the first go around, what, is, what does Satan do? Uh, Job's sons and daughters are killed. They're on one house, and the house falls in. His, his livestock is stolen. His fields and crops are burned up. Everything is gone, and servants come and tell him this all in one day. And, and in that, Job doesn't curse God. It says in verse 21, it says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would say that if all those things happened to me in one particular day. But there is Job. Hey, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the lame name of the Lord be praised. And God kind of points that out to Satan and says, look, you know, you've done all these things and he's still a servant me. He is not cursing me. He is not turning away from me in this situation. And then Satan kind of probes a little bit more. Well, what if I affect his body? What if I cause boils to come on him and so forth and, and all these things? And, uh, and God says, you can do all those things, but you can't kill him. And that's what happens. And, and boy, Job's body is covered with boils. He's scraping it with pottery. And then his three friends come along. 
sincere, passionate friends. And for a whole week, they spend with him, which is kind of a Jewish tradition, and they say nothing. They're just there for comfort. We wish the story kind of stopped at that point because after that, they start opening their mouth. And, and one of the things that one of them says, Eliphaz, he says, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? In other words, God takes care of good people and why have the, nothing ever happens to them. God takes care of them at that point. And he says, I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, they will reap it. In other words, you will reap what you sow. If you do good things, good things are going to happen to you. And if you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. And so for the next 37 chapters, they comfort him with those words, basically saying to Job, Job, there must be sin in your life that these things have happened to you. Or there must be sin in your children's life. Or maybe you just didn't good things, didn't do the good things like take care of the poor and help people out, maybe. And Job has an answer for every one of those things. He says, no, that's not true. That's not true. No, I've done that. No, I've done that. I've done good things. Job is basically saying, I don't know why this is happening to me. And I wish God would tell me, but I haven't done the things you've talking about. And yes, all this calamity has fallen upon him. And that's basically the bulk of the book that all these, uh, all these things uh, I haven't done. But I've done good things instead. And so it is not the answer that we necessarily want to hear. All right? Job is basically saying, God, tell me why this is going on. And there's no answer at that point. I would be frustrated. I think you would be frustrated in that and saying, God, why is there not an answer for what I'm experiencing? Are you trying to teach me something? Is there a sin that I just missed at some point in my life? That, that this has happened to me? What's going on, God? Why are, are bad things happening to me when I've tried to follow you and be diligent and passionate to you all these years? And then finally, uh, after the 37th chapter, God speaks. And for the next probably about four chapters. And, and it's interesting what God says. It's kind of frustrating because God says, you know, where were you, Job, when I created the heavens and earth? Where were you when I, I said, you know, I separated the, the firmament from the sky and so forth, and I caused light to shine? Where were you when I did this, when I created all the animals? Basically, what God is saying to Job, I'm the creator. I'm the supreme God. Why do I have to answer you? Now, again, that's, that's something that's frustrating me when I read that. Maybe it frustrates you, but it's definitely frustrated me. Why is that? All right? And yet Job is still there loving God in the process. And, and what's fascinating at this point is that God finally tells the three friends, you need to make sacrifice for yourself. And you need to come and ask Job to come and pray for you, for your folly that you've been given him in 37 chapters. So what is God doing basically to the three friends? He's saying, look, Job is a righteous man. You're not. And you need to ask him to pray for you so that you won't get what you really deserve from all the things that you've said and condemned him for. And so then we see that Job's health is restored. Uh, his wealth is doubled. He has now 10 more children. He lives to the age of 140. And when he dies, it says he is full of his years. Yet God never tells Job, 
why he went through this situation where there was a wager, a contest that was going on. I think it might have helped, but he never told him that. And yet Job was there, patient, loving God all through it. And so there's a couple of things we can learn and observe from the book of Job. Here's one. All the bad things that happened to Job are, are, are not God's idea. They're Satan's ideas. God does not actually generate the evils and suffering in Job's life. We also note that God is in control of what Satan is permitted to do. Let me say that again. God is in control of what Satan is permitted to do. He limits what suffering is placed on Job's life. We have to know that God in no way enjoys seeing us in pain. Yet we need to know that there is a plan behind the pain that sometimes happens in our life, even when we might never know the reason why it's there. Can we live with that as faithful believers? Simply because you and I can't perceive the good reason for our suffering or for the suffering of others doesn't mean that there's not a reason for it. God has a reason in all he does. I tell my students all the time, there's, there's some things that you need to realize about God, some basic things. God is a loving God. He is a holy God, but he's also a loving God. And every single one of his decisions operate out of that holiness, but also that love. Holiness said that the wages of sin is death, and we need to die for our sins. But God also said, out of love, let me send my own son to die for us. All his purposes come out of that. And the Holy Spirit is there to help us to understand those things. Here is where we, we must find peace simply by trusting God when bad things happen to us and we don't know why. There might be some reasons. Maybe we cheated in some way, maybe we did something wrong, but I always say that when, when we're going through a difficult time, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? And sometimes it might just be patience to trust him even when he doesn't tell me the reason why. Can I be like the man Job in his faith? That's a tough one. But here's an example. What's always fascinating to me, some scholars would say that Job was written around of the time of the, the patriots, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some scholars even feel that this might actually be the first book of the Bible, the first scripture ever written. Now, that's kind of interesting that one of the first things that God would want to have written down was the fact that people, good people, can go through difficult times and never know the reason why, but can they trust in God and be faithful in those times? Is that a lesson that he wants to learn right off the bat, that he wants us to learn as believers? There's, there's not always going to be a reason that we're going to hear from God for what we're going through. Can I trust God when I don't know the reason? Can I trust him that he's a good God and he cares for me in, in those situations? Now, what scholars have done over the years when it comes to scripture, they have taken certain literature in the Bible and they call it wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. There are five books of the Bible that fall into this. Job is one of those. Ecclesiastes is another one. Psalms is another book of wisdom literature. Proverbs is a book in, in wisdom literature. And the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon is one of those books. And so what these books are there for is to give us some wisdom of how to go through life. 
In the Bible, wisdom is not presented in a single decision, a belief, or a rule. Let me say that again. In the Bible, wisdom is not always presented in a single decision or a rule or a belief, but rather as a way or a path to go through life, a way or a path to go through life, how to discern amidst difficult times and the twists and, and turns of life, what to do in those situations. So, so what does the Bible or what does the story of Job tell us about wisdom? For one thing, it favors the wisdom of those who have actually suffered over those who merely speculate about, all right? When I look at Job, I see an example of how to live ideally as a believer when I'm going through difficult times. Now again, when I'm, when I'm in trouble, when th certain things happen, I'm always gonna ask, Lord, is there something that you want to teach me? Is there a lesson I need to learn? Because I wanna learn that lesson real quick so these difficult times will pass and I can move on and hopefully learning from if I made a mistake, how to fix that so I won't make that mistake again. But again, Maybe the lesson is simply, are you going to trust me even though calamity comes your way? And so what does he want to teach me there? And the book of Job challenges the prevailing wisdom found elsewhere in Scripture that basically good things happen to good people and bad things always are going to happen just to bad people. For example, if you, you read one of the last chapters in the book of Deuteronomy, the end of the Pentateuch, the books that Moses wrote, and in chapter 28, my subtitles in my Bibles, as I look at the other day, it said, blessings from obedience. And the other subtitle was curses of disobedience. All right? So God in that chapter in Deuteronomy 28 says, if you do this, if you do this, and all these things that you do are good, all right, you're going to have blessings. But if you do this evil thing and this evil thing and this wrong thing, you're going to have disobedience and, and you're going to have trouble in your life. But Job, the book of Job is not the only one that throws a wrench into that idea that good things only happen to good people and bad things only happen to bad people. Let's go to another wisdom book. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. In other words, he has allowed the other one as well. When did, what does this all mean? Those who wrote the Bible had no issues with this unresolved tension uh, of why bad things happen to good people. They were okay with that. They understood that. And the wisdom books kind of bring that sort of idea out to us, that it can happen, that bad things can happen to good people. Things that we don't deserve in necessarily in this life, but they can happen, even though we're good. Maybe to help us to grow and to become closer to God in those situations. Job's friends made the mistake of assuming that one truth in the Bible in context applies to all time. You reap what you sow. And this is why you're in this situation because you're a bad person, Job. They applied that all the way across. And that's a common error among us as believers. We do the same sort of thing. Uh, we want to believe that, okay, when bad things happen, I must have done something wrong. We need to remember three things when it comes to suffering. Every human being deserves condemnation. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. God saves us by his grace. 
I don't deserve anything from God. I look at my life and I look at the past and I look at the mistakes that I make even today. I'm not perfect. And when it comes to God's scorecard, 95 is not good enough. He wants 100%. The only way I can do 100% is that I have to trust in Jesus so he can impute, give me what he has done and, and let it cover my life because I am a sinful as we, sinful person and a fallen person. Every, every believer that I've known that have been in the walk for a period of time realizes more and more that they don't deserve the goodness that God shows them, the grace that God shows them. It's grace. It's grace. It's mercy on God's part. A second thing, when we suffer, it may indeed be because God wants to correct us or help us or to learn something or to wake us up when necessary. But all we know is that God has good purposes for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. But that good might not be a good that we see in our lifetime. It might not be a, a good that we see because the good we did to somebody, they went on and ch change their life, and we never see that person again, and we don't hear about that. Sometimes being at Southeastern for 33 years, I, I might see alumni come back and say, hey, you know, I, I appreciate what you taught me in that class or how you acted along that way, and I would have never known it if they hadn't told me that. I, I, I remember one time when in my first couple years at Southeastern, I was, I was teaching an Old Testament survey class that started at 7.30 in the morning. Ooh. It was in a long room, kind of like this, but much narrower, and you walked in from the back of the room. And so I would try to get there early to get set up and so forth to teach. <coughs> Pardon me. And when, when I'd come in, there would always be three ladies sitting in the back, and they were older. They were not your 18 to 22-year-old. They were probably in their early 30s. I think one might have been in their 40s. And they, they came there early and would always kind of have tall coffee together. So yeah, as soon as I walk in the room, they where they were because in the back of the room. And this is the only door coming in from the back. And so I, I would get to know them and kind of chat with them, who they were and so forth. Didn't think it was a big deal. Probably about four or five years later, I got a letter from one of them. A simple note. And it says, Dr. Hackett, <clears throat> I want to thank you for learning my name. Learning your name, that's a big deal. She said, you see, when I first went to church, I went with my husband and my two little girls, and we always sat up front and things were good. But a couple years ago, my, my husband left me. Left me for another woman. And now, when I go to church, people look at me differently. I feel like a second-class citizen. I, I really feel uncomfortable going to church now because of the way people look at me, like I've done something wrong because I'm divorced now. And, and so now I, I want to take my, my little girls to church because I know it's important for them. But I, I come late after the service has started. I, I choose to sit in the balcony so I don't have to see anybody. And I choose to leave early and get my girls out of there so, again, I don't have to see people when I'm there. It meant so much to me that you learned my name and you greeted me in that time. And I'm thinking, I just thought that was just 
a common thing to do, but it meant so much to her. And, and I'm wondering how many times we do something for somebody and, and don't realize what it means to them in that moment and may never realize that maybe we never get a note. And maybe not until we're in heaven do we see the result of the good that we did. Maybe it was something that caused us pain and suffering to go through. That same student that wrote that about his father having muscular dystrophy for, for 22 years also told me this. He said, you know, I can live with that because the joy my father has in spite of his suffering so ministers to me about the grace and power of God. Wow. Well, do you want his father in a wheelchair with, with multiple, uh, you know, would he want him in that just for that reason? No, but that's the way life is in that situation. And he is grateful that God works in that. So we need to realize that goodness will eventually, though, be rewarded. What does Paul say in, in what is it, Romans 8, verse 18? He says, I reckon or I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is about to be revealed to us. A glory that is about. In other words, this, this suffering here, when I look at the glory and I look at this suffering, <laughs> nothing to the glory that God has waiting for me in heaven. Wow. Help me to see that, God, to see what Paul saw in those situations. You see, you read what you sow. Yes, it does apply at times. Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and he tells them, hey, you reap what you sow. But what he's trying to say is continue in your good works. But Paul himself experienced suffering for sharing the gospel. <clears throat> There's a passage in 2 Corinthians where he talks about this in chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. Let me read it to you. He says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about these super apostles that are questioning Paul's apostleship and authority. And yet Paul has planted this church in Corinth. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in the danger of the sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gotten, uh, often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have uh, even gone without food. I have been cold and naked. <laughs> Paul wrote half the New Testament. Paul planted all these churches. Paul was sharing the gospel. And yet, those are the things that he experienced. And yet, he's writing to the Galatians and saying, hey, you reap what you sow. And Paul's apostleship is even being questioned because of those things that I just read in 2 Corinthians. How can he be a man of God if he's going through those things? Well, maybe it is because he's a man of God. And, and what he says has meaning to us because sometimes we too go through suffering and we can identify that, hey, bad things do happen to good people. And yet Paul can write to the church at Philippi, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And he's writing from prison. Amazing. 
Help me to have that faith, Lord. See, wisdom is sometimes situational. Wisdom is sometimes situation. It, just, it is not just knowing what to say. It's about knowing when to say it. And it's not just about what is true. It's known when it is true. You reap what you sow, except when you don't. Is what really the truth of the matter is. To engage with the Bible with wisdom is to embrace diversity, not fight against it. Ecclesiastes 3, 1, 4, 7, and 8 says, for everything there is a season, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. Different seasons of life require different wisdom for those times. Wisdom tells us what is the best thing to do and say in a given context. Sometimes it will say, say something here, and sometimes it will simply say, shut up. Don't say anything at this time. This is why prayer and discernment and our relationship with the Holy Spirit is so important. So important that we hear the voice of God like Pastor Jeff talked about last Sunday. We need to hear his voice in those times. What do I do in this situation? When I pastored and I'd walk into a hospital room where somebody was dying of cancer, Lord, help me, what do I say or what do I not say? Do I go in and just be silent for a while and hold their hand? Do I weep with them in this moment? Do I quote scripture? What do I say in this moment? Because each person is different and each situation is different. There is one no fix fixes all. And yet Job says what? All right. Uh, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Wisdom tells us and, and keeps us in a relationship with asking God for what to do in each situation. So what are we saying? God's children are invited into the diversity of thought that is in Scripture. Yes, there's times when, when Bible verses contradict themselves because in one situation, it's true here, and in another situation, this truth works in this situation. And, and we are invited to question, to debate, and to consider the big questions of life. Why is God allowing certain things to happen to people? Why is this going on? We need to understand the Bible was never intended to deliver an internally consistent, self-evident worldview that provides clear, universal, simple truths that answer every situation. Proverbs 4.7 says, Get wisdom, though it costs you all you have, get understanding. God wants us to be wise for the things that life throws at us or that Satan throws at us. Yet Ecclesiastes 1.18 says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Well, contradiction. Proverbs 17.22 says, a cheerful heart is good medicine. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says, frustration is better than laughter because of the sad face is good for the heart. What are you saying, God? And I love this one, Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Two contradictory verses right next to one another. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be like him. The next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So what do you do? God, help me. Do I answer this person, or do I keep my mouth shut? Right? Give me what to say if I'm supposed to answer this person. Don't let me get caught up in the folly of the person themselves. Sometimes it's good just to keep your mouth shut. And sometimes it's important to speak up. 
Wisdom tells us what to do in those situations. Uh, so what, what is that an example of? It demonstrates that wisdom is contextual. And this is why we have the Holy Spirit. This is why we seek wisdom. When we see, uh, what we see is that the Bible does not always agree with itself, and that's okay. That's what God intended. He wanted that kind of, that diversity of thought in there so that we would seek him for what to do in each situation. He has canonized, he has put together a Bible that at times contradicts itself, and he's okay with that. Are we or are we looking for one simple truth that's going to work 100% of the time? It's not. God is saying you need wisdom, and you need to depend on him in those situations. Wisdom and discernment tells us that, that uh, what may be wise in one context might be foolish in another. Now, let me read this to you, all right? When God gave us the Bible, God did not give us an internally consistent book of answers. Now, that might upset you at that point. God gave us an inspired library of diverse writings rooted in a variety of contexts that have stood the test of time precisely because together they avoid simplistic solutions to complex problems. He's saying, hey, this book works for everything, but I'm not going to give you a simple answer that is going to fit every single situation in life. It is because God trusts us to approach these problems with wisdom, to use discernment as we read and interpret, and to remain open to other points of view. This is why he has given us the Holy Spirit to call upon in difficult situations where the answer is not clear to us. Are you okay with that? The Bible is not a book of just black and white answers. This is why Proverbs 4, 7 has said, again, seek wisdom, get wisdom. Though it costs you all that you have, get understanding. This is why James 1, 5 says, if any person lacks wisdom, let him ask God who will give it generously to them. Now, what is the context of that? You go back to verse 2 and it says this, count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. And I, I want to wipe that right out of my Bible. Count it all joy when I'm going through trials of various kinds? Yes, because those trials are producing in me character and perseverance and steadfast. They're making me better. But then he adds that verse 5 on there. If you lack wisdom, call upon him when you're in those trials of various kinds. And he will give it to you liberally, generously in those situations. This is why God has given to all Christ followers the Holy Spirit to help us through these times. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can know the mind of Christ and understand these things. He is there for us. God is there when you don't have the answers. God is there when you're struggling with the unknown. God is there asking you, you know, when you're asking what has happened, God is there. How do I know that? Because he is the great I am. And that means he is always present in every situation. He was, he is, he will be. And that will never change. We sung today a chorus, God is for us. Don't ever forget that. That's a truth that is never going to change. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? 
because we have the God of the universe against us. Do, do good people go through suffering times? Yes, it happens. But I know this, that our present sufferings, like I said, are not worthy, not worthy to be compared to what he has in store for us. All things work together for good. All things. I'm here because of the prayers of my grandparents who never saw me saved. They died before that happened. But there's no question in my mind because I knew the people were, and, and I heard their prayers praying for me. My sister's a believer for the same reason. Their two sons are believers for the same reason. But they never saw any members of their family come to Christ in their lifetime. But they never stopped praying or trusting God. The results of that goodness came after their death. And, and, and we have to realize that. Whether we know it or not, he is there to love us and help us through. Can you trust God when you don't know the answers? Can you trust him? When you're going through a difficult time and you're wondering, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And no answer is coming to you like it didn't come to Job. Can you trust God? Can we be faithful in those times? Would you stand with me? I'd like to pray with us. Pray together. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling. You've gone through a time that has been difficult and you're finding it hard to trust in God. I know I've been there. That's not unusual. That's, that's nothing to, to, to say that, you know, you're going through and feel embarrassed about. It happens. Life is going to throw things at, at us. The enemy is going to put things in our way that, that are going to try to get us away from God. And that's when we need the prayers of one another. And if you're going through that, I, I would just like you openly lift your hand. I'm going through something. Bill, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know what's going on. But I want to trust in God. I, I'm, I'm struggling here, Bill. I don't know why this has happened in my life. And we as a, as a body of believers want to pray for one another in this time. So Father, we're praying for you. Would you help us to be faithful and to trust you when we don't know what is going on? God, will you help us to trust in you in every situation that we face, even though there might not be a reason that we can understand or we can figure it out. But we believe you. We believe that you're a good God and you care for us. You have given us wisdom. You have given us the Holy Spirit to help us to understand or, or maybe just to, to be patient and to trust you no matter what. As, as Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Lord, I want that to be our prayer, not just for me, but for all of us, that we would hang tough when bad things are happening to good people. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.